0: Cinematic fanatics. In this particular case, you hellbound book hounds. The only thing more satisfying than a gorgeous and flawlessly executed standalone slick flick pick is one that honors, if not exceeds, the splendor of its novel source material. Sometimes a screenplay or film has been novelized into a riveting read. Conversely, an analog-bound book. Yes, when I say analog, I'm talking about paper and glue and paper binding. I'm not talking about a notebook. I'm talking about something that can cut your fingertips and make you bleed. But an analog-bound book is oft condensed and converted via a complex digital undertaking into a cinematic adaptation. Now, as you know, I love film and I particularly fancy slick flicks. But I do want to remain literate for the remainder of my days. So I decided to challenge myself, and this will of course be my third challenge presented to you in the form of a novel, slick flick, comparative analysis. Some of the very slickest, sleekest, passionately picked flicks I've had the pleasure of enjoying originated with a slick page flip, I took pride in perusing. The age old debate remains as heated and vitriolic as ever. That lingering, pesky, vexing question is the slick flick pick better than the slick page flip? Sometimes this answer proves easier than slicing your fingers' flesh on the corner of a page in one of these hell bound books. I offer the example of absolute power. I dare proclaim that the film, in this case, is equal to the novel. But of course, I will investigate that matter promptly and fully for you today. Equal, tantamount to, and equivalent of, these are loose expressions, not to necessarily be perceived in a linear, blow-by-blow sense. Rather, the novel is a sterling example of a collection of pages Clauses, characters, and words that comprise in this novel's case five hundred plus pages, but it never staggers nor runs out of narrative steam. It's competently written with astute action slash suspense sections, and it even dabbles in romance without encroaching into maudlin or cheesy turnqueasy. That said, the film brings these characters to such visually striking, breathing, three-dimensional life, coupled with the deft direction of Clint fucking Eastwood, and an upper-crust cast working in terrific tandem. The shortcomings of the novel are rectified by said film, Absolute Power, and the glossed-over or inadequately deep moments in the film are navigated with such confident style and an engrossing story. Those foibles and or inconsistencies almost morph to something endearing. While I will not perform this companion, contrast, comparison analysis between the primitive novel and polished flick on every Slick Flick pick, I will grant you the gift of an either or both discussion when I find the proper pairing of bound paper and waxy film. Enjoy, you hellbound bookhounds. Ow! 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 Hounds and cinematic fanatics as I investigate these various bound collections and similar comparisons to their corresponding flick. Remain on track with your deft, rapt attention intact through an orally pleasing perusal, as you sate your curiosity with each passing slick flick page flip pleasure on my chemohawk rack. Snuggle the fuck up with a bloody slick. Hellbound book in your secretive nook. And as you earn each paper cut, you'll feel the characters in your gut. Whether binding open or cover shut, you've wed the novel. The flick serves merely as your mistress slut. Now, the term mistress will take on frighteningly relevant circumstances for today's novel selection. Here, we unwind some novel binding. For this is where final cut greets paper cut. The slick flick pick we will be discussing to compare to today's selection. Pick 14, slick flick pick. Hail to the thief. AARP burglary spree. Absolute power, 1997. And of course, this was my first episode of Clint's, that's Clint Eastwood's film gamut series. And while that flick was undoubtedly slick, we can examine that slickness with the slick-bound binding of absolute power. This master thief, amateur father, aka Luther Whitney, remains blood-slick-bound and gripped by the smoking gun of a blood-stained letter-opener-slash-blackmail with a presidential-sealed manuscript. Today, you are gifted the treat of orally checking out this edition. Third selection of Slick Page Flip from my Chemohawk Library Rack, Hellbound Binding 3, Slick Page Flip. Witness to a slain mistress. A thief skilled, whore killed, and vengeance fulfilled. Book comparison, blackmail file analysis of both Absolute Power, the film, and novel. Your Freestyle Logophile, Bibliophile, and Cinephile. Falsetto Prophet. Soon your fingers will bleed as you fill your reading need. This is where Final Cut greets Paper Cuts. Absolute Power, written by David Baldassi. I recently conducted a recording with Caro Blood Red Wine, and that will actually make two Slick Flick picks that we have enjoyed and recorded together. The first is Urban Legend, which will be released soon, and we also did The Covenant, which, as she refers to, qualifies as more of a guilty pleasure. But one thing we spent oodles of time discussing was our mutual love of certain novels, and she is a self-proclaimed avid reader. Well, I am being very selective in which novels I select to compare to aforementioned Slick Flick pick. But with absolute power, it was a no-brainer, because not only is the film high on my list of enjoyment and rewatchability, I wanted to know more about the source material. Plus, I've always been a fan of David Baldassi. Like I said, I wish that I could find source material for every Slick Flake pick, but it's just not practical. This novel is 505 pages. It is dense, there are several subplots, and there is a multitude of characters that you have to stay the course with and learn about. The reading is moderate. It's not difficult. And it's not for young adults. It's in that sweet, sticky middle, kind of like a good workout, where you can still talk if you wanted to, but you're enjoying the workout, so you really just focus on that. Well, with this reading, I had to pay attention, I took some notes, and I am ready, because I come correct on these slick page flips. Now, this is my third. I don't know how many there will be, but I already have some ideas, always rattling around and sprawling out within the vastness and the long corridors of My Falsetto Mind. I enjoyed this novel. I actually read it twice in the course of about three weeks. It's tricky because, kind of like the vampire hunter Blade, all of their strengths, none of their weaknesses except for the thirst of human blood, this film and this novel, they complement each other. I think they're basically a dead tie because where the book falls short, the film picks up that slack, but the film could have involved some more characterization, Dialogue and richness of the novel. But we got what we got, and it's going to be a rare day that I am particularly critical of a Clint Eastwood directed and starred in feature. All that to say, I would be happy to rewatch this film a couple times a year, but I don't know that I'm going to be rereading the novel anytime soon. So when it comes to sheer enjoyment, I enjoy the film more than the book, but the book is not devoid of its little pleasures. Now, a little bit about David Baldassi. He's an accomplished author. He's written quite a few successful works. born August fifth, nineteen sixty. He's an American novelist and he's an attorney by education. I don't know if that means he's an autodidact, I'm not sure, but he has written mainly suspense novels and legal thrillers. You know who else has written a lot of the same? John Grisham. He was born in Richmond, Virginia. He is of Italian descent. The last name kind of clues you into that. And he practiced law for nine years in Washington, D.C. after he got a Juris Doctor from the University of Virginia School of Law. I seem to have answered my own inquiry. Now, while practicing law, he turned to novel writing, and it took three years to write Absolute Power, and it was published in 1996. What is very impressive about that is that it was published in 96, but the film was released in 97, which means, as you would expect... Clint Eastwood really had his shit together for that production. And, of course, it would go on to be an international bestseller. And to date, Baldassi has published 46 bestselling novels. Now, I'll admit, I have released a shit ton of Kimohawk Sessions for you. I believe my current total is 138. But I do not have the mental acuity or the stamina to crank out 46 novels, let alone have them be bestselling are you fucking kidding me? So I remain impressed. But his first novel, Absolute Power, which by the way, considering that this is his first, his premier novel, just double what I just said. I'm doubly fucking impressed by his skill set. But it tells the story of a fictional American president and his secret service agents who are willing to commit murder in order to cover up the accidental death of a woman whom the president was having an affair. And naturally, it would go on to be directed with supreme craftsmanship by my main man, Clint. Also, I will tell you that Red Devil has recently read one of three of the Alosius Archer series, and she read one called Dreamtown, also by David Baldassi, and she said it was great. It was one of her favorite L.A. noir detective novels, and that's the third of three in that Archer series. I think she's going to want to read the other two, which are One Good Deed and A Gambling Man. So that's two. Two people right now that are vouching for the skill set and enjoyability of David Baldassi and his novels. The film was released in 1997 and it was 121 minutes long. For the purpose of this novel being 500 pages with several subplots, I think that that is an inadequate time constraint, even with Eastwood's economical filming style. I think the film should have been about another 30 minutes. I think it should have been two and a half hours long. I think they should have spent more time with the central characters, and I think they could have simply expanded on the plots that were already established. Because in the last 20 minutes of the film, a shit ton of shit occurs, and in those events transpiring, it starts to go a little bit off the tracks. It does not completely derail, but it just could have been handled with a little bit more finesse to feel a little bit less rushed. And I think that could have been achieved if they added about 30 minutes to the film and they were very intentional with how they spent those minutes. But this clearly falls in the genre of crime and thriller. This is the official synopsis. An experienced burglar, Luther Whitney, which is a cool name by the way, breaks into a billionaire's house with the intent of robbing it. But then he notices the President of the United States is there with this woman and this love tryst that they're engaging in. Turns violent. Secret Service agents bust in, kill the woman. Whitney views all. He ends up getting his hands on the murder weapon. Technically, it's not the murder weapon. The murder weapon would be the firearms that are discharged by the Secret Service agents, but it is crucial to the longevity of the president's tenure, let's say. They catch on to Whitney, and then it becomes a presidential cat and a mischievous mouse game throughout the vast majority of the novel. Now, Luther Whitney is a main character. He's a professional burglar who was caught three times in the past. In the book, I think that Whitney kind of takes a back seat to some of the other plot threads. I think this is a mistake, and I think that the film, shown so effortlessly by Clint Eastwood's performance, I think it rectified said error in judgment. Because Luther is such a complex, sympathetic figure, and I think Clint Eastwood was the perfect casting choice for that role. And I think that had it been anyone other than Clint Eastwood, I don't know that they would have pulled it off with the appropriate aplomb, but I think that the film steered the ship in the proper direction with giving not only more time to Luther Whitney, but making him the central character of this sprawling conspiracy. Now, Kate Whitney is his only daughter, and in the book, I would say that even though Laura Laura Lenny, okay, I will tell you here and now that Laura Lenny, who personified Kate Whitney in the film, I think she is a very talented actress. But based on the roles that I've seen her in, I think she's kind of bitchy. She was bitchy in Congo. She was bitchy in Primal Fear. She's really bitchy in this film. However, I do like her as an actress. I liked her in The Mothman Prophecies. And upon rewatching Absolute Power of the Film for like the 15th time, I'm starting to see her gradually less and less bitchy. I really think she's just hurt. And she's playing that in a way that she's limited to screen time in in a two-hour film. But I'm starting to develop more sympathy for her character. But in the novel, she's definitely more of a bitch. So I think that it was also probably a step in the right direction to humanize her more in the film. But I think that Laura Linney, just like Clint Eastwood, visually brought to the screen just what was needed for by way of the character in the novel. Now, Publishers Weekly called this novel a first-rate storyteller who grabs readers by their lapels right away and won't let go until they've finished his enthralling yarn. For all its arresting premise, an overblown and tedious tale of capital sins. I disagree with that carcass review, I really do, because I think that this novel is well above average. And interestingly, with this novel, there's a dedication page, which, as you know, is a page that's somewhere around the preface. Usually, a family member or a fellow writer, or someone that they decide to devote the work to. Well, in this case, it says, To Michelle, dearest friend, loving wife, partner in crime. I would have written something like partner in presidential crime, or partner in high crimes and misdemeanors, because I think that would have been hysterical. Unfortunately, you bibliophiles out there, and you cinephiles out there, and you cinematic and bibliophatic and whatever, not everybody gets my sense of humor. And I say, shame on them. There's also an epigraph, Absolute Power Corrupts Absolutely, Lord Acton. It's a little on the nose, but fine, whatever, the point is driven home. I can tell you that this novel is gripping, it's suspenseful, and it's the definition of a page-turner. However, I feel that one of this novel's flaws is spending time on what I consider to be irrelevant and unsatisfying plot threads. They should have focused more on the central characters. They could have shaved about 75 pages off of the duration of this novel script. But we got what we got, and I'm not complaining. I'm just tweaking. Now, this novel starts right up at the mansion. We don't get any fluff. We don't get any bullshit. We don't get any setting the table. We go straight into the mansion scene, which is great. Because much like with a Michael Mann film, you want to start off bold. Or you want to start off very intriguing. And this book just jumps right into it. I would say that along with the characterization, Clint Eastwood is the right age and he's the right look for this Luther Whitney character. Luther Whitney, 66 years old, and much like explained so bluntly in the film, he is a card carrying member of the AARP, (laughs) which is great because it's a joke in and of itself. Clint Eastwood making fun of his age, oh, I'm old, I'm feeble. I couldn't rappel down a four-story mansion, and yet he can Very nice throwing them off of the burglar's scent. And then there's some really great writing. I mean, this novel is chock full of exquisite clauses and just very clever ways of expressing things. Arteries finish closing up with the clutter of a lifetime. You can see that. You can feel the arteries clogging. I start getting heart palpitations every time I read it. Now, he did fight in Korea, as the film would allow us to understand a little bit later in the film. So he's a Korean War vet, he resides in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and he lives in Middleton, Virginia, which is about 45 minutes from DC. And I like that because you get this sense that we're near DC, we're near all of the politics and the sleaze and the presidential crimes and misdemeanors. We're close to the action without being neck deep in the action, although ironically, he will find himself in quite a spot here in the first 30 to 50 pages of this novel. He scouted this location, this mansion, for one month at least, and this novel goes into more detail about the plans, the coordination, and all of the prep work that went into pulling off this caper. He also talks about how the tennis shoes that Luther wears make no sound. Now, I am not an avid reader, but I can tell you that I did read Lee Child, a novel of the Jack Reacher series, One Shot, and what I learned about Jack Reacher is that he loved to wear boat shoes because they're silent. So that's something that came to mind. But Luther investigates this mansion all the way to the edge of this cornfield. What I like about this writer is that he spends time on the detail and the details that you would want to hear because you want to know how this burglar plans these capers. You want to know why his reputation is so grand and so gilded. So he takes the time to talk about how there's not going to be perimeter security because there would be, like with motion sensors, there would be way too many false alarms on account of small animals and various critters knocking things over, causing a ruckus, and leading to security having to go out for these red herrings. So I appreciate that level of detail. Now, Luther had been in this very mansion in the daylight at a prior moment, scouting everything out. And I don't know that the film went to that level of detail, but he knows everything about this mansion. The house was built in the last five years, and much like in the film, at least him talking about it in the film, he got plans from the courthouse and the commissioner's office. So this motherfucker comes correct when he's going to be pulling off these crimes of the century. Now, much like the Native Americans, Luther Whitney prefers to leave no traces, as you would expect from a brilliant B&E man. Now, this is going to be, in theory, about a $2 million haul, so well worth the seed money that he invested in this little criminal caper. We also learn here that the president has a high tolerance for booze. So in the film, things start up with Whitney being in the safe and he's in the safe room and the president is there with that girl who is Jan in the office and there's laughter and then they're just already in the bedroom this goes into a little bit more detail this shows the presidential motorcade rolling up he's flirting with this girl getting her drunk in the limo his chief of staff or thief of staff is right there with them and the thief of staff has a crush on the president which this novel goes into much more detail you do have the same two ss guys you've got Bill Burton, and you've got Tim, Colin, but there's a whole nother vehicle with two other Secret Service agents in the novel. This was not the same in the film, but it's a minor discrepancy. Gloria Russell, his chief of staff, she wants the presidential pin, if you know what I mean. She wants to bang the president so bad, kind of like a Monica Clinton situation. She has the hots for this president, and she has for a long time. And that will play a significant plot thread as matters materialize. Also, again, with this great writing, this expression, but her gentleman caller tonight was in an altogether different class. This president not only is in the highest office, but he seems to have quite the reverence from the female American citizens. And so that would be anticipated that even these rich socialite women, model women, would be attracted to him as well. This guy is completely new, I never once saw nor heard from him in the film, but his name is Jack Graham. He was a former athlete, he's 32, he's capable, and his wife, or soon-to-be wife, excuse me, her name is Jennifer Rice Baldwin. This will be a significant plot thread in the novel, because his relevance, Mr. Jack Graham's relevance, he's an attorney, he used to date Kate Whitney, Luther Whitney's daughter, and he used to be good friends with Luther. I don't know that this direction that the novel takes us is necessary, nor is it needed for any purpose of the arc of the plot. And I think that the film was wise to just nix it. But his soon-to-be wife is gorgeous and rich. Her father is a land developer. It's everything he could ever want on paper, but he's absolutely miserable. There's no love there, and he still pines away for Kate Whitney. So this is where we're going to get into this kind of love triangle, but it is handled gracefully because normally I can't stand that shit. He is a public defender in D.C., and his soon-to-be wife hates that. She desperately wants him to be a partner at her father's firm. That's where she thinks he should be, and she wants to control every motherfucking aspect of this guy's life because she's concerned about superficiality and appearances. He seems more like a well-rounded individual, more down-to-earth. She also hates where he lives and thinks that he is a slob, so she really only puts up with him coming to her at her lavish, palatial estate. Now, he finally joins Patton, Shaw & Lord, which is the number one corporate firm, basically to acquiesce to her demands, and he is pretty good at what he does there, but he is miserable, just like he's miserable with this Jennifer Rice Baldwin chick, who again, the book does not mince its words. She evidently is a drop-dead gorgeous fucking knockout. But he loves Kate Whitney, and he used to visit Luther Whitney because he likes him. They have a good reciprocal relationship. But unfortunately, even though he was in the throes of love with Kate Whitney, they split after his first year of practicing law for two main reasons. He defends people who broke the law because he was a defense attorney, and she hated that he liked her father. Now, the film does a pretty good job of capturing that dissent between Kate and Luther, but the book really drives it home, where Kate was just devastated growing up with this burglary father figure. She hates Luther so much for the pain that he caused the family, her mom, and herself. She saw him as bringing shame to the family name and being an absentee father. This will stay with her for her entire life. She can't have a normal, healthy relationship with this guy, Jack Graham, so she leaves him, she is single, she works herself to death, her diet consists of like coffee, crackers, and she limits herself to two cigarettes a day, and she is a religious runner. So she has buried herself in her work and in running so that she does not have to come to terms with the waspish nature and relationship that she has towards her father. The book is much more delectable and graphic than the film. You can visualize things in the book that the film somewhat glosses over, but there's more to come on that. Now you see Bill Burton and Tim Collin. These guys were expertly shown by great actors in the film. You've got Dennis Haysbert and you've got Scott Glenn, always reliable. In the novel, they get a lot more dialogue and much more character development. But the broad strokes, the broad strokes are accurate. Bill was a Maryland State Trooper for eight years and Secret Service for 12 So this guy is like career law enforcement, and as such, he has garnered considerable respect from others in the law enforcement community. Alan, the president, Alan Richmond, he has been betting celebrity whores and political groupies for some time now. Gloria Russell does not give a fuck about Sullivan. Walter Sullivan, who is Alan's good friend that we will learn in the novel and was also discussed in the film, he was pivotal to this guy getting into office. So he is a billionaire, and he has got connections up to Wazoo. And then, of course, we get some more great dialogue. One of the Secret Service men trying to justify their faux pas. He's the president, ma'am, he added for good measure, as if that justified everything. Now, in the book, Gloria Russell gives a long-ass speech about why they should not call the cops. Now, there are two more Secret Service guys outside, which is neither here nor there, really. But this is all condensed to one line in the film where she looks at Scott Glenn and says, Think real fucking hard, Bill. I want to say that the film fell short, but the acting is so good and the line delivery is so spot on. I really don't have a complaint about the lack of plot or the lack of dialogue that they give the film. Now, this is much more cloak and dagger in the book. All the steps and the rigmarole that Christy Sullivan has to go through to meet up with a president for these dangerous liaisons it's very interesting we can call her gloria russell the rapist because i shit you not in this book after the president has basically been a party to murder of christy sullivan when things went out the window he's lame there he's distraught he's basically asleep he's drunk russell rapes the president <laughs> she gets on the president when he's passed out and grinds and grinds on him i guess in the hopes that he's going to give her the presidential seal of a baby. But really, in the movie, you can make the argument that the president was the most evil, but Gloria was like the most unlikable. But in the book, it's interesting because Gloria Russell, the thief of staff or the thief of innocence, she is the worst character by far. The president almost looks like he's just more confused and sad, but she's the one that's purely and simply evil. In the words of Dr. Loomis, Luther Whitney, as he's watching all of these crimes unfold, he watches the death of this girl who's the wife of a very powerful billionaire. He witnesses this assault on the president, both physically with a letter opener, but also by Russell the Rapist. He's watching all of this, and then he spends hours sitting in this room watching their cleanup effort, and he admires their level of detail and thoroughness, which is interesting because he's looking at it through the eyes of a meticulous thief. There's a lot more time on how they sanitized the crime semen scene, we'll call it, in the book. They spent a lot of time talking about how they got the blood out of the carpet fibers, and I actually really liked all that detail. It's like a fucking CSI episode. Tim gives the letter opener to Russell, just like in the film, but this leads to this budding subplot, which will be stricken entirely from the film. I think (laughs) sleazy rich bitch would probably be her informal epitaph, if I had a say in the matter. It's just interesting because Russell is just such an unusual character, and she's so important to the the suspenseful moments of this novel. Now, much like in the film, Luther has a hundred feet coil of strong nylon rope, and also a big difference here. Now, as you can expect, he gets away from the mansion and all that, but Luther actually heads out of the country to Barbados to escape initially. Whereas in the film, he never actually gets on the airplane because he sees this press conference. So that's a little different. And then we get some more great writing. He held up the leather bag she had bought in Georgetown for a hundred bucks and now worth incalculably more to her. The letter opener is missing. Whoops. So that will be a MacGuffin, this letter opener, but it also is a sensical plot thread. And we get more great writing. Every associate and junior partner he knew at the firm had stomach problems. A quarter of them were in therapy of one kind or another. You know what this sounds like? working for the white-collar, working for that bomb shelter of an office, that I started Chemohawk Sessions to try to talk sense into my friends about being very weary about working long hours for a white-collar conglomerate. We get more great writing. Jack watched their pale faces and softening bodies as they marched daily through the pristine hallways of PSNL, bearing yet another Herculean legal task. We learn that that's the trade-off for compensation levels, That put this company in the top 5% nationwide among professionals. That's no excuse. I work too. Yeah, but the difference is your boss has the same last name and is wrapped around his daughter's pretty little finger. This is just one of many arguments that Jack Graham, that's a cool name by the way, will get into with this lady, Jennifer Baldwin. What is the presidential strategy here? Categorical denial. They are going to deny any accusations that ever come up regarding what is going on with Christine Sullivan her death, and all of the dark intrigue surrounding it. Now we have Sandy and Jack. Ah, Sandy. Lord Sandy. He is an important figure at this company. And it's basically a straight commercial transaction entered into by intelligent, sophisticated parties. That is the type of relationship that we're talking about and this band of legal eagles. And I think that the author here handles the romance of Jack and Kate, which will kind of be this on-again, off-again thing throughout the novel. He handles it gracefully. He really does. I'm impressed. I didn't find myself gagging halfway through. It also makes the story of Jack and Kate engrossing because there's this old trauma shared between them and a sea of new possibilities. Now we learn that Sandy Lord, you know, one of the names of this firm, is in cahoots with Walter Sullivan. This, of course, will be interesting. And Jack cares about his colleagues at this firm and he's very interested to learn just what the hell happened to a former partner, Barry Alvin. Well, Barry was fired, ultimately, and Jack is told, We saw Barry as a high-priced liability without the talent to leverage himself. Now that sounds familiar. Well, Ransom Baldwin is Jennifer Baldwin's father. I just love, again, this writing on page 134. Your head high, your conscience clear, your beliefs intact. Jack, Graham, and Sandy, you don't pull any punches, do you? I don't have time for that, Jack. Not for the last 20 years. If I didn't believe you could handle the direct approach, I would have just bullshit with you and let it go. Well, Sullivan, the, his relevance to this whole legal triangle is that he is Patonshaw's biggest client. There is a longer, wider investigation of Christine Sullivan's death in the book. They go to great detail with the interviews, the canvassing, the CSI, the DNA analysis. This book clearly did its homework on how you properly conduct a follow-up to a crime and all of the circumstances that go into investigating it. Now, we get Seth Frank, portrayed brilliantly by Ed Harris in the film. I really liked his character in the film, and I think that he really did justice to the character, Seth Frank, as is seen in the novel. It was interesting in the film, watching Ed Harris think out loud as he was trying to figure out just what the fuck happened, but the novel gives it much more time, and it expands upon it, and it expounds on it, and I actually appreciate that. Now, these Secret Service dudes toss the weapons that they fired in the Severn River, well what is the Severn River? It is a tidal estuary fourteen miles long, located in the state of Maryland. Now you know. Bill Burton had actually jumped in front of Allen's body six years prior. So as you would expect, he is quite the hero. And I believe that in the film they adequately portray, kind of through Seth Frank, that people have a lot of respect and admiration for Bill Burton. This is very prescient, but I shit you not, my face dropped when I just saw that in the novel, one of the subplots deals with a Russia-Ukraine conflict, and Sullivan, with his billions, is in the process of trying to work out a deal with Ukraine, because in this novel, Ukraine is America's ally. But I think it's interesting because that is happening right now. Maybe it's prophetic, maybe it's coincidental, I don't know. But I thought that that was very interesting and eye-opening. Now, Jack goes to visit Luther, and just like in the film, Luther keeps his key and the plant on his porch sandy lord is the attorney to walter sullivan this is where this other subplot starts to materialize where tim the secret service agent and gloria start bumping fuzzies but naturally with gloria being gloria there's more in store and she's up to no good and this plot will slowly unravel as the novel proceeds similar to the film but a little different walter sullivan wants revenge for his wife's murder and he hires this assassin michael mccarthy But in the novel, they are on a plane. They're not at Walter Sullivan's residence. The offer $100,000 a day to wait and double for the actual assassination. Just like in the film, there's this mention of, well, she would have been with you if not for this sudden illness that caused Christine to not be able to go to Barbados. Much like in the film, this will be a linchpin and the Shakespearean end to some characters. Bill Burton, this is casually shown in the film, but he is spying on Tim and Gloria Russell. He's recording conversations, just as in the film. And in the book, that gets a lot more limelight. And then, of course, this is some more great writing. This is Bill talking, A good fuck from a young buck was not nearly important enough. Bill knows that Gloria is planning something and definitely manipulating the younger, dumber Tim. I also like, during Frank Seth Frank's investigation, he's talking to the staff that cleans the carpet of this lavish mansion where the murder occurred. We learn that all these cleaner guys have nicknames. And for example, this one guy says, I'm Ton for Skeleton. Seth Frank gets a laugh out of that. Well, Jack meets Walter Sullivan through Sandy Lord. Sullivan gives Jack respect when he learns that he is Baldwin's, quote, legal eagle. So that will be an interesting plot thread as well. And, of course, we're told that the U- Ukraine has massive natural resources. And, again, I say this is so prescient, so prophetic, because here we are today. And they are interested in a deal with IRBMs, which are intermediate-range missiles, basically for, for Ukraine to try to sell them to America. So, Walter Sullivan is wanting to get involved in this arms manufacturing transaction, which could lead to a colossal turnaround. They would be able to buy these weapons from Ukraine and then sell them internationally. Because there are stipulations in place where the Ukraine can't just sell them to anyone because of sanctions, there's just kind of this underlying plot where they're trying to make a shit ton of money profit buying and selling these IRBMs. Luther Whitney taunts Gloria, just like in the film, so that's nice to see. There's a really good scene where Bill Burton confronts Tim about the screwing around with Gloria Russell and trying to warn him, even though there is some friction between these two Secret Service agents. Over how everything played out. He basically has a no nonsense talk with him, trying to set the guy straight. Seth smokes cigarettes and he eats Tums, where in the film he only ate Tums. He and Bill Burton were similar in that regard. You also have these characters that are not in the film at all Wanda Broom, she will have kind of a subplot in and of herself. And then you get this great dialogue. Frank was certain that she was lying, but he had been unable to unearth any evidence to the contrary. You know, this author has a real linear writing approach. It's very logical, it's very sensical, and sometimes it's very artistic and poetic. But it's a, he's a very matter-of-fact author. What you see is what you get, and I appreciate that. Now, Seth Frank suspects that this was an inside job with Wanda Brome, who had connections to the mansion, and she also knew Luther Whitney. Well, Luther Whitney ultimately decides that he wants Jack to be his attorney, we also learn that Wanda dies because she has an overdose of digitalis, which stimulates the heart muscle and she ultimately commits suicide because she's so distraught over the fact that she was involved in giving information to Luther for the alarm code, but she was friends with Christy Sullivan. And as Christy Sullivan died, even though this had nothing to do with Luther Whitney's presence there, she feels so grief stricken. She ultimately commits suicide. And then her mother Edwina. So Edwina Broom will be an important plot device later in the novel. Now, again, none of this is in the film. I think it's kind of an intriguing premise, but it's not entirely necessary. Now, the letter, there's this, what everyone writes off as a suicide note from Wanda, but Edwina knows better. She knows that this is not Wanda's handwriting, but Luther Whitney's handwriting. So it actually ends up kind of being a code that Edwina is able to crack, knowing that Luther Whitney is involved. Of course, Bill Burton and Seth Frank are smoking buddies. And you kind of got glimpses of that in the film, where they get along, there's a mutual respect there. And yes, just like in the film, Bill Burton is absolutely tapping the phone of the police, for his own blackmail reasons, of course. But Richmond, just like in the film, he's not even aware of the blackmail yet. Gloria Russell and the Secret Service guys intentionally keep it a secret from the president for obvious reasons. Bill Burton confronts Russell, and he makes it clear he hates her fucking guts, but what I do like about the novel over the film is that this scene gets the proper time and attention that it deserves. Now, this is not detract in any way from Scott Glenn's masterful delivery of, every time I look at you, I want to rip your fucking throat out, and the way he stares at her, you can just feel that palpable, irascible temper and that he's holding back, but this novel goes into good detail, explaining just what he thinks of Russell and why. This lengthy confrontation is great in the book, and I really wish they had added it to the film. And like I said at the beginning of this film, I think it would have been closer to a perfect movie if it was about two hours and maybe 35 minutes long. Just add more dialogue. Give us more time with such colorful and wonderful characters. Also the scene, so Kate finds these Luther Whitney framed pictures in his house of her in these pivotal moments in her life. But in the novel, she finds these pictures alone. She's not with Seth Frank. However, Bill Burton will quickly interrogate her subsequently but she is not with Seth Frank as she was in the film. I like her going to the house with Seth Frank in the film, although it did raise questions about search and seizure rights and things like that, but who gives a shit? Now, Gloria has fucked him a few times, and then she basically breaks up with him, and they're basically acting kind of like they're in high school, and it's kind of humorous. It's funny how it plays out, and he's just so grief-stricken over it. She was using him to basically keep a lid on the secrets that he was aware of that they were mutually keeping from the president. And I love this line from Miss Broom. The Sullivans had so much, they couldn't possibly miss so little. Now, Luther is arrested at Cafe Alonso. This is different than the film in many ways, because in the film he escapes. Now, you do have these two assassins, one a Secret Service agent, the other this hired assassin McCarthy. That plays out very similarly, up to and including the refraction of the light on the window pane from the scaffolding and how that fucks up the shot. But Luther is in fact arrested at the cafe whereas he brilliantly escaped in the film. Jack is Luther Whitney's attorney now, and Luther is only concerned for Kate's safety, even though, much like in the film, she set him up, and she was the reason that he showed up to this rendezvous, which ultimately got him nabbed. And this is where things are interesting. This is probably just coming from the research that this author has done in his life, but on page 361, the courthouse. The Middleton Courthouse had long been the centerpiece of the country. 195 years old, It had survived the British in the War of 1812, and the Yankees, and the Confederates, in the War of Northern Aggression, or the Civil War, depending on what side of the Mason-Dixon, the person you asked, hailed from. A costly renovation in 1947 had given it new life, and the good townspeople expected it to be around, for their great-grandchildren to enjoy, and occasionally go inside. See, this is just great detail. This is the kind of detail that there's just no way you can compress into a film. For time constraints and budget constraints. And this, of course, is one of my favorite clauses in the novel. Reporters were a defense attorney's best friend or worst nightmare. A lot depended on what the reports thought about a particular defendant and a particular crime. A good reporter will cry loud and hard about his or her objectivity on a story, at the same time trashing your client in the latest edition long before any verdict is in. Women journalists Tended to go easier on defendants accused of rape, as they tried to avoid even the appearance of gender bias. For similar reasons, the men seemed to bend over backward for battered women who finally struck back. That to me sounds ahead of its time. It sounds socially relevant even today, particularly today, I might add. And then this very small if you cough while reading, you might miss it, but Luther calls the president a fucking bastard on camera. And this will be integral to the plot later. I also learned a few new words from this novel. There's a word, a sybaritic adjective, which is fond of sensuous luxury or pleasure, i.e. self-indulgent. Another word, assignation. Now, an appointment to meet someone in secret, typically one made by lovers. Assignation. That's a good word. Kind of like a tryst, right? And then, of course, here's the president giving his full analysis of Christie. Christy did not have too much upstairs. Her gifts were slightly lower. (laughs) It's funny to the degree that the president objectifies her and so many others where you're just getting a real sense of the kind of sleaze, this presidential sleaze seal that we're getting here. Now, Ransom Baldwin, Jennifer Baldwin's father, who again is not in the film at all, is an imposing figure. The guy's six foot five. Now, Jack is meeting the president via the Baldwins, and this is where Jennifer Shakes the president's hand, and we get the equivalent of the tennis elbow scene that we see in the film. Kate and her running scene, it's longer here. And unlike the film, she runs into Jack, her old flame, and not her father. My preference, I actually prefer the scene in the film where she runs into her dad the first time. But here, instead of running by this body of water, she's just running all around the middle of DC. And she will run around like the Washington Monument twice. And then, of course, Jack conveniently bumps into her. But he was actually kind of mildly stalking her. But if you read it, it's it's kind of cute. It's kind of endearing. It's not what you think. Now, Luther Whitney likes Jack. He always did, and he still does. And we see, or we, we get to read about Luther Whitney spending time getting a will done. He's developing pictures. These pictures will ultimately be used for a plot device and for blackmail. When Luther Whitney flies out of the country towards the beginning of the novel after the crime, the flight path is Dallas to Miami. Miami to Puerto Rico, or Puerto Rico, and then Barbados. And he has a disguise, and his name for this disguise is Arthur Lannis. Now, the film spends quite a good amount of time with a discussion about fake IDs and disguises, so it's, it's a reasonable facsimile. We just get a little bit more information here in the novel, and more great writing. But like River Rocks, they had eroded over the years. They were not what they were. So happens to us all, does it not? And then he also has here, he had rehearsed this convo for the last two hours. Every possible question, exchange, deviation. We feel sorry for Edwina Brome, her daughter Wanda who committed suicide, and it is in her grief that new truths will be discovered. You learn more about Seth Frank in this novel. He has a family. I actually thought it was kind of a cool play out where in the film, Seth Frank kind of falls for Whitney. Because there is no Jack Graham or even mention of Jack Graham in the film. So I felt like it was more central when you have this detective assigned to the case, Ed Harris, and he has to investigate and question Kate Whitney. So I felt like that was an organic approach. Seth Frank is a likable guy. He was likable in the film, but it's hard not to be when you're Ed fucking Harris. Even when that guy's a villain, he's goddamn likable. But in this novel, you just really get the sense that he's trying to do the right thing and he can be taken at his word. Another great little line here from the novel, Nature's parting laugh to the living. Beautiful one minute, rotting the next. This, of course, is in relation to Christy Sullivan. Okay, we learn about how to get fingerprints, which if you've ever watched any crime-related show ever, you already know. But Super Glue has a chemical, cyanocrylate, I believe, and it's the best method of fuming and can pull prints right off. We get more of the Seth investigation, it's very enthralling. We get to see what he sees, think how he thinks, and I appreciate that aspect of this absolute power novel. We learn that Whitney used a counter, which runs massive combos of numbers through the security system until it finds a match. This was briefly shown in the film. Of course, we hear that whoever committed this break-in or committed this crime knew their shit. Well, no shit. Huge twist here. In the book, Colin kills Luther Whitney. Gunshot, heavy-duty ammo, kills him instantly. This is completely different from the film. In the film, Luther Whitney does not only not get shot, but he never gets arrested, and he escapes, and all is well at the end of the film. In this novel, he's assassinated like two-thirds of the way through the book, and I was shocked. I'm like, holy shitballs. And what sucks is, in the book, you really don't get a lot of time with him like you do in the film, and I thought making him the primary protagonist in the film was definitely narratively a step in the right direction the plan here is to pin the murder of Luther Whitney on Walt Sullivan and then suicide Walter Sullivan kill him, make it look like an accident Bill and Tim do kill Sullivan subsequently, and they make it look like a suicide, so that's another huge variation or deviation where we have these two guys assassinating Luther Whitney and assassinating Sullivan So, the only people you really have left to solve this fucked up corruption is you've got Seth Frank, Kate Whitney, and you've got Jack Graham working together as a very unnatural threesome to get to the bottom of this shit. More great writing. The emotion that finally penetrated the inscrutable line of his mouth and the deep gray of his introspective eyes was anger. That is very well written. Now, Walter calls Alan and asks questions. He's taunting the president on the president's private line. The problem, though, is as we know the president is homicidal, probably not a good idea to badger the man. But badger the man he does, because Walter knows that Allen was responsible because of that throwaway line, if only your wife hadn't gotten sick, etc. Seth Frank is suspicious of many things. Lord and his firm lose the investor of Walter Sullivan because of his suicide, if you will. And so this, of course, is important because now that law firm is scrambling as he was their biggest client, biggest investor. Kate Whitney quits her fucking job. Hallelujah. She was miserable, and it took some of these life-altering moments to show her the light. But she quit. She is outie. Also, Jack breaks up with Jennifer Baldwin, the most beloved, wealthy, well-off creature in the land. He left her, one, because he's really in love with Whitney, but two, because, well, she is a tart that is treading water in the deep end of a shallow pool. One of the primary instigator reasons why he breaks up with her is because she had Alvin fired, simply because Alvin inconvenienced her in an indirect way. So that's all Jack needed to be like, you know what? I'm outy, bitch. And then, of course, Edwina Broom, who we've talked about, she will ultimately send a package for Luther Whitney that is delivered to Jack. So now Jack and Kate have some ammunition that they start working together in tandem with Seth Frank to get revenge, and to put the proper parties in their place. Tim killed Sandy Lord and his side bitch, so we got more assassinations going on as they are proceeding to try to wrap up this cover-up. Kate then visits Miss Broom, gets additional information, because one thing we can say about Luther Whitney is he's always got a plan B, C, and D. This guy's got half the fucking alphabet, and he's got everything in order. And so because of that, even from the grave, he's posthumously able to render some bombs to be dropped on the presidential palace. I had this question. I wonder if Kate is jealous, as she's talking to Edwina, learning how close Luther Whitney was with Wanda. It's as if Wanda was kind of like his surrogate daughter. And the book doesn't talk about it. But I just wonder if when Kate is learning this, because, you know, she has been completely estranged from her father, I wonder if she's jealous learning that he kind of took on the father figure role to this girl Wanda, the deceased. Now, this backup of blackmail information is a package for Jack's Eyes Only. And then, of course, we learn that whenever you have a clandestine payoff, the hardest thing to retrieve safely in an exchange is that money. So if you negotiate some corrupt, illegal deal, and that exchange has a return of money or diamonds or something you can profit from, something tangible, you have to collect that money and you have to do so in a way that doesn't land you in the clink. So that's the most difficult part of the transaction is how do you get the money and walk away clean? Well, what we learn is that Gloria Russell fell for it, and she did issue money to what Luther Whitney would describe as like one of his favorite charities. But what they didn't know was that Luther Whitney put a tracer on that account going the other way. So this is very bad for the president and his staff. I love when Jack is talking to Tim and Bill. They're basically there to kill him, and he's like, "Oh, I know you two. You try to blow my head off, and you try to blow smoke up my ass." (laughs) But they don't kill him. However. Jack traps Bill and Tim with some fake surveillance that he'd paid a guy off the books to install some surveillance gear in a TV that's in the hotel room, and it captures their whole conversation, their very incriminating conversation, on the surveillance equipment. So now these two dudes are fucked. Well, Bill ends up committing suicide. But what I always wondered in the film, because he commits suicide in the film, but I always took the film to mean that he was killed by Luther Whitney and Luther Whitney simply made it look like a suicide. But after reading the book, I'm starting to think, no, Luther only killed Tim because Tim was about to execute his daughter. But I think Bill, in the film, if it's staying true to the book, he just committed suicide because he always had carried this weight. He felt responsible for what happened to Christie and several other bad things that occurred throughout his time and tenure as the secret service for the president. Bill, of course, kept blackmail tapes, and now we have this tracer on the account where money was sent to pay off this blackmail bribe for Whitney. So even though it's left a little bit open-ended, it's pretty much set up that the president is going down and he's totally fucked. So even though we've lost Luther Whitney and we've lost Walter Sullivan, the book ends on a positive note. However, I really like the ending and I prefer the ending of the film because in the film not only is Clint Eastwood with his daughter again and they've officially buried the familial hatchet, but There is a sparked, budding romance between Kate and Ed Harris. So I actually prefer the ending of the film, although I think we could have used more character development to make the ending even sweeter. Final story in my complete analysis, the book and the film are about equal, but I just found the film to be more enjoyable. And I feel like with the casting, those characters were fully fleshed out and really brought to life. There was not one bad performance in absolute power of the film. I really appreciated the way that Clint would wove that story together, and it's very impressive, considering how dense the subject matter was and how intricate the novel presented the information. Final answer, I think I like the film more, but I think from a sheer quality perspective, I think they're about equal. The last page has been flipped, all spoiler plot points slipped, and cinematic comparisons stripped. You pragmatic, dramatic, both novelized and cinematic fanatics enjoy both mediums, no doubt. Whether it is an enlightening entertainment you read, or to the astonishment of your visual cortex, some slick flick you choose to watch. You can experience both insightful delights on Chemohawk Sessions. Lingering last minute advice. One, please go to Chemohawk Sessions on Apple Podcast and rate me and leave comments. I would very much appreciate your words. They would mean the world to me. Secondly, please don't settle in your respective layer nook with a digital notebook, but rather grab a primitive, analog paperbound book that can silently amuse you and draw your very personal DNA through a looming paper cut. The presidential motorcade may arrive, secret service sinister secret service that is, in tow, when the film medium has completely waylaid and won over the cozy nook headspace of perusing an amusing F-Star's book. Revisit the orally pleasurable auditory halls of my Chemohawk Sessions Library soon for your next slick flick pick slash slick page flip comparison. Hellbound Binding 4 Slick Page Flip Thick Weeds Chin High Betray Thin Lies. Every Dolly finds their folly. Sleeping with the Weeping Willow. Book Comparison Re-Reading Twixt. The Winter's Bone film and Winter's Bone novel. I don't know if you've seen Winter's Bone. I don't know if you've read Winter's Bone, but I highly recommend both. And soon, you will get a Slick Flick Pick of Winter's Bone, and you can listen to the Slick Flick Pick review, you can listen to the Slick Page Flip review, and you will be in good fucking company. Your worthwhile cinephile and freestyle paper-cut bibliophile. Woo! That is a mouthful if I do say so myself. Balsetto profits out.